0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. New drugs are constantly being developed and released for our use. It's difficult to keep on top of all of these new medications. Very often, patients bring these medications to our attention after hearing about them on a television ad. Our topic of discussion for today is new drug development and approval. With us today is Dr. Denise Dupra, a friend and colleague, as well as an internist with added expertise in pharmacology. Dr. Dupra practices primary care at Mayo Clinic. Welcome Denise. Thank
1: you, Daryl. It's a pleasure to be here today.
0: Well, let's start by having you explain the process and timing of how a new medication is approved and then eventually released for our use.
1: Yes. It's actually quite a complicated process. And if you look at what goes on, pharmaceutical companies are actively looking for new drugs all the time. Um, and whether they're in a chemistry lab or taking soil samples and looking to see, does something grow, do chemicals grow? In fact, I'm a fan of CBS Sunday Morning News, Sunday Morning, and they just had a, a show on this past Sunday about a soil sample in Ireland that ha- they've discovered potentially a new antibiotic, which is a super bug killer. And, and it's a great example of what happens. Somebody discovers something and they bring it into a lab. And whether they study it in in vitro, where they put it in a Petri dish and see if something grows, or they test it in a number of different ways. Um, In a, a laboratory, chemical, they try to see what it does. And that's the very basic thing. And then from there, they actually, after studying for a long time, will take it into basically clinical studies. And that's really the first step and once get into clinical trials. And that's, e- before they ever bring that drug to market, there's actually a number of phases of clinical trials. And actually the FDA requires them to go into at least three clinical phases before they can actually do a new drug application. And the first clinical phase is they'll take a drug and they'll just say, is it safe? And that usually involves a very small number of patients often healthy or sometimes they have an underlying disease that that compound might target. And they just say, can people take it? And they'll use that to sort of identify what levels, how much of a medication can they give, what are the toxicities. And then they'll go into a larger or phase two trials where they'll actually see, does it work? Does it actually do something beneficial? And those studies may go on for a couple of years. And then in phase three trials, which are, larger studies involving more patients, those are things that, for instance, you might have a patient who has a condition, and you might have colleagues who are running a clinical trial, and they say, does your patient want to be involved in a study? And those are typically the things we think of where patients would be randomly assigned to either a placebo medication or a sugar pill or an active drug, and they're really testing to see, does this drug really work? Once a pharmaceutical company has gone through phase one, two and three trials and they've shown that the drug is safe or has acceptable side effect profile and that it's effective, then the pharmaceutical company can actually apply with a new drug application to the FDA, who then has an advisory board that will actually study the drug, all of the information, and then come up with a recommendation about whether or not that drug will be approved by the FDA and be marketed in the U.S.
0: So quite a lengthy process.
1: Absolutely.
0: Roughly, how much time do you think it takes from a drug getting discovered until it's actually released for our use?
1: It's years. Many years. Many, many years. And if you look at the process, um, and the drugs that go into phase one trials, about 70% get into phase two but it's a small number of drugs. Only about a third of drugs get into phase, go beyond phase two trials. Really? So if you look at even, and I'm gonna talk on, uh, I give uh, talks frequently on new drug development and overall each year it's about 40 new drugs that actually come to market. So it's not a large number of drugs that Mm -hmm. actually go through and there are some drugs that never make it through for a variety of reasons. Um, as you can imagine the amount of money spent on developing new drug is astronomical. And I think most of us as as patients, consumers, recognize that when you go to buy a drug and you find out exactly how much money it costs. Mm -hmm.
0: So how does a medication eventually become generic?
1: Right, so when a drug is approved by the FDA, the company will have a patent on it for I think it's 17 years. Now some of that time is often involved in the drug development when it's patented. But when it becomes generic where it's off patent, then another pharmaceutical company can manufacture and basically bring that drug to market.
0: So are other companies usually producing these generic compounds rather than the original company who developed the drug?
1: That's correct. And then they actually have to do, also get an FDA approval
0: for a generic drug. The same kind of testing?
1: Not exactly, but they have to have some bioequivalent studies. So they have to be show, show that the drug will basically, they don't have to prove the drug works, but if it's a tablet, they have to show that it dissolves about the same way that the bioavailability, so if you take a tablet, you swallow it, that about the same amount of drug gets absorbed in the body. And it's not exactly, but they have parameters in which it has to be close enough. Okay. To be a, is considered a bioequivalent or a therapeutically equivalent drug.
0: All right. Well, let's change topics just a little bit and talk about FDA approval and drug safety. Uh, There have been some recalls lately, Um, one that I recall on Valsartan. Yes. Uh, What was that all about? What happened there?
1: It's, It's a very interesting story. So, you know, the manufacturing of medications doesn't all occur in the U.S., And Valsartan is a particularly fascinating story, because it affected all of us as primary care doctors. All of a sudden, we had patients calling saying, "Uh, my drugs are going back. And it wasn't just Valsartan. It was some low sartans, It was some of the other Sartans. But what happened is the company that was manufacturing Valsartan, which was in a foreign country, what they found out is that there were some carcinogens that the drug was coming in contact with during the manufacturing. And so it wasn't that there was anything wrong with the drug, but it was just that the compound was contaminated. And it wasn't all the valsartans, but it was some of the valsartans from some of the companies. And so it's even uh, the, the compound, which is one of the NMDAs, has been shown to cause cancer in animal models, and it's a potential carcinogen in man, and it was found at higher than acceptable levels. And so that's why they recalled it so it was a potential warning but it led to a massive recall which was obviously impacted all of us the tough part was it wasn't all the valsartans it wasn't all the tablets it wasn't all the manufacturers and so it was like your grocery store where they say we're recalling campbell's soup or a bread product lot number whatever and so it created a lot of problems for many many Mm -hmm. of us and a drug shortage for some people who really had depended on that medication for their heart failure or blood pressure.
0: So can we rest assured that if we're prescribing generic medications to our patients, that they are safe and they're as safe as the uh, branded product?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. There are very few instances where, um, personally I take generic drugs, Mm -hmm. okay? So I think generics are safe and effective. Um, There are very few cases where, at least in the past, where the release characteristics of some medications were different, so they weren't exactly the same. Now there are some people who will tell you, and I have a patient who says, I only take a brand name because the others don't work as well. You know, I think that there's a lot that goes into how a person feels about their medication Mm -hmm. and how they feel it works. The other thing to keep in mind is that some of the things, the other excipients that go into a tablet, may differ between brand names and generics. And so some people, if they have allergies or sensitivities, there could be differences because of something else in the drug, but the drug, the active ingredient themselves should be exactly the same in a brand name versus generic.
0: It certainly has made it more difficult. Uh, I, I always have told my patients, you know, when you get your refills, make sure they look exactly the same, they're the same color, and that they're exactly the same medication so you don't get something that you're not expecting. But now with different companies making generic products, that can change every refill.
1: Absolutely, and the pharmacies will have different generics. So one time you may get a generic from one company, it looks one way. The next time it's a generic from another company, and it looks a completely Mm -hmm. different appearing pill, perhaps even shape, size, color. Exactly. Um, One of the advantages there are actually a number of apps for your smartphones that you can actually do and do pill finders and things, which can be helpful. we used to be really sort of uh, uh strict about having our patients bring their pill bottles in. I always think it's a good idea, especially if there's some untoward side effects, to ask your patients, bring your bottles in with you so you can look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, days gone past, my pharmacy uh, education came in handy as a medical student when the patient would come in and they were on Lenoxin and, and you'd ask what strength and they didn't know and I'd say white pill or yellow pill because I knew what strength it right. was. I, I looked like a superstar, um, but you know now, With generics, there's no way to be able to do that. You know, there's just too many different colors. I even color coding the the warfarins anymore because there's all different generic coumadins now and warfarins. You can't really rely on color anymore as as being an identifier of a pill.
0: This episode is sponsored in part by GibLib, G-I-B-L-I-B, an on-demand library of medical talks covering the most important and advanced topics trending in primary and specialty care. Subscribe now to learn from subject matter experts from Mayo Clinic's top conferences. Subscribers to GibLib receive unlimited access to new exclusive content released every week. Learn more by visiting giblib.com slash and use promo code MayoTalks to receive one month of free access. That's GibLib, G-I-B-L-I-B dot slash Getting at drug safety again, there have been some new informa- There's been some new information on the uh, fluoroquinolones in terms of some new, previously unrecognized adverse effects, right?
1: Absolutely. In fact, um, the latest one has been cautions regarding uh, vascular disease and potential ruptures. But uh, the fluoroquinolones, which have been sort of the holy grail of antibiotics used for everything now, they have a laundry list of adverse effects. Uh, diabetics, the concern about low blood sugar mental health changes, including disorientation, memory loss associated with fluoroquinolones, and the latest one is blood vessel diseases, including uh, ruptures in people with vascular disease. So, you know, it started out with tendon cautions, and I've had a couple patients of my own who are not taking fluoroquinolones, but yeah, fluoroquinolones are falling off radar as being uh, go-to drugs Infectious disease anymore. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've, are no longer first-line agents for urinary tract infections. In fact, we should avoid them, particularly because of side effects.
0: Now, are these adverse effects more likely when they're using them long-term, or is it doesn't the duration matter?
1: You know, it really hasn't. I think one of the things we're seeing, and we often see this when a drug comes to market and it's used widely some of these unusual side effects seem to become more prevalent and i think it's just wider use we Mm -hmm. see these unusual or infrequent side effects much more commonly and it becomes much more evident that there are unanticipated adverse effects of some of the medications so it's hard to know i think there is with any of these drugs i think there's a concern about long-term use but i suspect what's happening is that the Widespread use is leading to their use in individuals who have a susceptibility and with the fluoroquinolones it's evident mm-hmm. and, and you can probably hypothesize that the tendon ruptures there's something in the connective tissues sure. with the fluoroquinolones and that uh, sort of rolls over into people with vascular disease and connective tissue disease involving the blood vessels and those are the people who probably are getting into trouble with the blood vessel ruptures too.
0: Your comment just reminded me of a former colleague of mine who always used to say, I only use new medications and I only use them for two years because those first two years there's no adverse effects.
1: Yeah, and I've even heard six months is just safer thing. First yeah. six months they're out. After that, don't use them.
0: Yeah, because then the side effects come out.
1: Yeah, yeah and they quit working too.
0: <laughs> let's, let's talk about drug shortages. We've yes. seen that. What's, what's going on there? Why does that happen for old established medications that have been out for years all of a sudden we find out there's a drug shortage.
1: Yeah, it, it's. It, I think there's a number of different reasons why that happens. I think sometimes it's manufacturer runs, you know, it's difficult to know, is, is it a lack of a basic medication? They're not just unable to get manufacturers, unable to get sort of a supply of X drug from somewhere. Um, sometimes I think it's probably machines going down. And if you're really sort of isolated or you only have one supplier, if they don't have it, you don't have it. But we see that and, and it's just difficult to know, and it seems that it's not something we can predict ahead of time, right. But it creates a lot of problems both for patients but also for prescribers yep. because you know, suddenly your patients at the pharmacy, they're going to be out of their drug, and there isn't always a easy fix. Um, and especially for our older patients where that change in medicine creates a significant amount of often confusion setting up their pills this is not the pill i took they're going from once a day to twice a day it really leads to the potential for some real uh, issues with regard to their care
0: and for us i mean we have our own set of medications that we're commonly prescribing and we're comfortable with the dosages and so forth and then when we have to find an equivalent I mean, we have to look things up and take time out of our day to do this, and it's very frustrating.
1: Absolutely, and, and I, I think where you know where where you and I work at Mayo, where our pharmacists are fabulous in sort of sending out a memo, you know, use this instead of this, you know, when valsartan wasn't available, try candesartan. Here are the doses, but it always seems to be about a week or two after we learn of the shortage, and we've already had six phone calls. Mm-hmm.
0: I have my own frustrations with the electronic medical record, but one thing I really like about it is the fact that it does let us know when we're prescribing something that patient may be allergic to, or there may be an interaction with another medication. Are providers heeding these uh, warnings? Are, the, are we looking at them and uh, choosing wisely, or do we ignore them?
1: Uh, I would hope most of us are looking at them carefully, um, I think one of the ones that's challenging is the long QT syndrome, mm-hmm. um, because that seems to pop up a lot. And while it sort of provides a way to go and investigate it, I think, and it also provides an Ask Mayo expert sort of guidance about what you do with it. You know, I've, I've looked at the long QT syndrome and Mike a- Dr. Mike Ackerman, of course, is like the world's expert on it, but it's not predictable. Mm-hmm. And so while there's a lot of warnings about it, there's so many drugs, that it says, you know, caution, caution, caution. It's challenging to know because it really takes a lot of medications out of our our, our toolbox mm-hmm. to give patients um, if they've ever had a long QT. And it just seems that uh, there's a lot of information there and I think you can get bogged down very quickly. It, if, you know, in, in my dream world, If I did that, it would suggest what I could use. Sure. You know, it'd say, don't use this, but use this instead. So we're not there yet. It's not smart enough to tell me an alternative. Uh, But I I would hope that having that information there um, is providing us with good advice about things to avoid. And I know our pharmacists will often call us and say, are you sure you really want that?
0: But it is nice that we have a tool where we may have ordered an ECG in the past and somehow it knows that this patient has a prolonged QT duration, yeah. and then we prescribe a medication yeah. and that puts those two together yeah. and sends us a warning. That's yeah. that's very helpful.
1: It is, and in fact, one of the recent uh, patients I had actually it said a long QT and I went back and looked and it was actually an old, old diagnosis and that actually most recent ECGs in cardiology evaluation had shown she doesn't have long QT, but it was a holdover diagnosis from a long time ago, and so then I felt very comfortable prescribing the medication, Mm -hmm. and the other I said, you know, uh, most recent ECG was normal, and so I felt comfortable using that, but it was a good way for me to look and say, okay, I'm okay prescribing this drug.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the cost of medications. We've always known new drugs are going to cost more. Branded drugs are going to cost more. Some of our fancy chemotherapy drugs are going to cost more. But we are seeing tremendous increase in costs in old, commonly used drugs, uh, insulin, for example, to the point where many patients have trouble taking care of their disease state because they can't afford this treatment.
1: And colchicine is the other one. Yes. I mean, colchicine was an old drug forever. Should cost pennies. Pennies, and they were charging outrageous amounts of money. And it's interesting because there was the one court case uh, that went and the one pharmaceutical company, actually they indicted him because of the cost gouging. And it, it's really unclear if this is a situation of corporate greed, um, just raising the costs, um, because we don't really know what the source is. Uh, You know, the insurance, it's troublesome. It's terribly troublesome because we know that these drugs don't cost that much. The cost of manufacturing these drugs that have been around forever is not that much. We know that some drugs have been taken off the the market because when the FDA went back and said, you have to prove it works, the company said, we're not going to spend the money to prove it works. And so they pulled the drugs off the market. Um, but what has been the source behind raising the cost of insulin? It's really not clear to me what that source has been. The interesting thing, and I think that something that physicians and patients don't recognize, is that when a generic drug comes to market, our immediate assumption is, oh, the costs will go down. But actually, the company that produces the generic drug is free to put whatever cost they want. So the cost savings is not always reflect actually the decreased cost that it costs for the price that the drug's made for. So um, one of the drugs that's just coming generic, announced at the end of January, is Advair. And so Advair, the company that's gonna make produce it, it has FDA approval to, to bring it out to market, it'll be interesting to see what they charge. But supposedly the cost of making it's gonna be at least 70% less than what the brand name is. But we'll see. The other thing that I find interesting is as these new drugs come to market, almost every pharmaceutical company is providing consumers with massive discounts. So if they can provide massive discounts, my question is then why aren't they selling the drug at that price? Um, So I'm sure it's a bit of developing customer loyalty and, and getting somebody on board to use this drug, but if you look at, for instance, the the new direct anticoagulants, oral anticoagulants, we got a lot of them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hope has always been that as we get more drugs in a single class, that will drive the cost down. Hasn't seemed to work. Um, yeah. So I, 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 understand, I understand business. I understand recouping your investment as you've spent millions of dollars to develop a new drug. Um, and I know that when drugs go off patent, there'll be generics to compete but um, there's a lot of money to be made out there, and unfortunately I think that, you know, other other countries don't have this problem.
0: Have you got any tips you give your patients in order to help them save money with their medications?
1: You know, I I, I, I tell them, number one, if it's a generic, use a generic. A number of different business, uh, businesses and, and companies actually have the $4 and $5, $10 generics. Mm-hmm. Um, when I prescribe medicines, I'll actually pull up a medication, and look to see where it is tiered for them in terms of their insurance plan to try to use the least expensive of a class of drugs for them. Um, certainly, if it's a new drug and there aren't alternatives, I will often go ahead and try to see if there is a coupon or a discount available for them. I don't do the paperwork for them, but I will send them or their child to the to the web and say, "Go look this up. You know, find out if you can do it." And I'll provide them a written prescription call 1-800-whatever uh, and see if you qualify f- to get a discounted thing. And in some cases that's been the the turning point for them to get appropriate therapy, right. in particular with sort of these combination uh, therapies for COPD, um, where I had a patient who was in the office all the time with her cough and I just saw her and he said, how oh, was your breathing? She goes, great. Uh, but I, you know, it's taken me 18 months to get her to use her symbicord.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that I will sometimes do is there are some medications where a 10 milligram may cost the same as a 20 milligram. And uh, it be nice if they're scored. They're usually not. But with a pill splitter, they yep. can usually get pretty accurate. Makes me nervous when they cut them into fourths to do that. But uh, it does save them some money.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And um, it's interesting that a number of companies are doing that now. It's the same price for 10, 20, and 40 milligrams for 30 tablets. And right. it makes a big difference for them.
0: Well, we've been discussing new drug development with Dr. Denise Dupra, an internist at Mayo Clinic. Denise, thank you so much for being here.
1: Uh, Thank you, Daryl. It's been a pleasure.
0: You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.